Good morning. How are you all today? If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29 will be in verses 11 to 13. We're continuing in our series of misunderstood, misapplied, misquoted passages of Scripture. I want to begin in a word of prayer. Let's ask God to guide us. Father God, we just thank you that the battle has been won, that we who know your son, Jesus Christ, as personal Savior and Lord, have a future, have a hope, have an eternal destiny not held by human hands. Father, we thank you that we have the confidence, the assurance that when you call us from this earth to be absent from the body is indeed to be present with the Lord, with you. Father, we pray for the nation of Israel. Father, what evil was perpetrated against them. We ask, Father, that you would protect the IDF as they go after justice. We ask, Father, that those who would fire on civilians, unaware civilians, would be brought to justice. We ask, Father, that there would be no safe hiding place for those who would try to do such evil. Give wisdom, Father, to the leaders, not just to Israel, but across the world, to our own leaders. We ask, Father, that leaders across the globe in our country would stop looking around and start looking up. And that there might be transformation in our country, in our world. And Father, may that be true of us. May we stop looking around and start looking up. And as we look at Jeremiah today, the 29th chapter, three verses that are so often cited, may we understand them in context, may we apply them rightly. May they give us encouragement and strength for our betterment in your great glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, Isaiah, I want to read today's text to you. It's one of those texts that you probably know by heart. It's so well cited. It's Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I think you'll probably agree this is one of those passages that is beloved by so many of us. Yeah, and for good reason. I mean, when I think about it, I love these passages, although I will say I'm not a huge fan of how the ESV reads it. I'm more of a fan of the NIV. See, in verse 11 in the, the New International Version, it says that God's plan is to prosper you or me. The ESV says plans to prosper for welfare. No one has ever memorized it out of the ESV. I can tell you that, okay? See, these verses are what we know as the Protestant prosperity gospel. So it's what we believe, what we imagine, what we can dream of and hope for. If we pray for that, 
God will grant us that, our, our greatest desires. I, I love how God does this for us. Maybe, can I share an illustration, Jeff? Maybe, maybe, illu- maybe I can illustrate it this way. Imagine Aladdin's lamp, right? We have Aladdin's lamp. We rub this lamp and out comes a genie. And just like Aladdin has three wishes, that's how it is with us and God. We can grant him our petitions, just like talking to a genie and he grants whatever we desire, whatever we wish, we just have to pray into existence. Context. You gotta know the context of the passage in order to cite it accurately. Do you know the context of this passage? Yes, yeah, yeah, I know the, you're making it way more complicated, Dr. Jeff, than you need to. Like this is way more complicated. The, The context is name it and claim it, right? We name it and we claim it. I desire, I want it, I pray for it, I pray it into existence, I have it. I think this is gonna work for you just as well, Jeff. Think about your greatest desire. Maybe a black Jeep with a rag top, fat, fat mud tires, right? Cruising through Wausau through, with the wind blowing through your gray hair. Like, this is what you want. <laughs> this is what you want, Jeff. All you have to do is pray it into existence. You know, it reminds me of what Jesus says in John 15, 7. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 7? Please. He says, if, my, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. So I'm thinking... I wish for a winter vacation, perhaps Hawaii in January. That sounds okay to me. I'm just going to pray and God's going to give me that. So let me get this right. You pray something into existence. So you're going to pray a trip to Hawaii in January into existence for you and Amy. How about praying for four tickets? Betty Ann and I will join you. And if it isn't prayed into existence, we'll use your credit card to cover it. I'm going to talk to Amy, and I'm going to start praying for that right now. Good. Go on and pray. (laughs) Now you know why it's in our misquoted, misunderstood, misapplied text. I want to start by saying that I love this particular text. In one of the announcements, it talked about the fact that we have a child dedication coming up. We do this a number of times each year. And I love when young parents have us read Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13 as the passage for their children. And I hope and pray that they understand the passage well. It's a passage on grace. It's a passage on mercy. It's all about restorative discipline in which God brings grace and mercy. And those are lessons we want to teach the next generation. Allow me to read it one more time. Jeremiah 29, 11, 12, and 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. If you're familiar with the text, you know that it comes at the beginning of a 70-year timeout. God is about to take his nation, Judah, and they are about to be enslaved. They will be servants, first under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and then the Medo-Persian Empire. This isn't a promise for financial welfare. This isn't a promise that all of our dreams will come true. This has nothing to do with Aladdin's lamp. 
This is God saying, in the midst of restorative discipline, I will give you, verse 11, shalom, peace, and I will give you tekwa, a Hebrew word that talks about an eternal future with God. Let me set the scene. We could back up as far back as Exodus 1, 8. In Exodus 1, 8, we have those who are of the tribe of Joseph. They've moved to the land of Goshen. He becomes the viceroy of Egypt, but he passes away and some generations begin to multiply and the Jews are now about a million strong. And the text tells us in Exodus 1, 8 that a king arises, a pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph. And you remember He is concerned with a million strong Jews, so he enslaves them. And they're enslaved, I believe, for about 220 years. God then raises up Moses and his brother Aaron to be the mouthpiece. And through a whole series of plagues, they demand on behalf of God, let my people go. And finally, the Pharaoh lets them go and They come to Yam Suf, that's the Hebrew phrase. Sometimes we say Red Sea, it actually means Sea of Reeds. And God separates the Sea of Reeds and they walk through on dry land. And remember the water closes on the Egyptians and now they're not quite in the promised land, but they're in wilderness. And they send out a couple spies. We have Caleb and we have, uh, who's the other one? Joshua, thank you. Joshua and Caleb, and they go and they say, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. But they don't believe. They doubt God. They doubt that God can take it from them, from these people that are live and huge and like giants. So God puts them in a timeout for 40 years and they wander and they wander. And and then we have the conquest, the book of Joshua. And it isn't all that pretty. We have the battle of Ai, and there's defeat. And the battle of Jericho, where there's great victory. And after they get into the land, and God divides the land among the 12 tribes, 11 get land, and the Levites don't. And there is disobedience, and idolatry, and immorality, and a lack of ethics. And then we go into the period of the judges. 330 years where God raises up a number of, of major and minor judges, and not one judge, not a single one, will rule over all 12 of the tribes. And at the end of that period, you remember the refrain four times in the book, everyone does what is right in their own eyes rather than in the eyes of God. There's idolatry, there's immorality, there's a lack of ethics. People are not looking at God. They're looking around rather than looking up. And as they look around and they see all of these nations led by human flesh. They say, give us a king with human flesh. And God says, bad idea. This is a theocracy. We shouldn't have a monarchy. And they say, no, give us a king. And so God gives them Saul in 1050 BC. And Saul reigns from 1050 BC to 1010, 40 years. And then David from 1010 to 970, 40 years. And then Solomon from 970 to 930, 40 years, 120 years. And then you remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, what a fool. Within a few short days, because of a miscalculation and an overreach of his rule, 
the 10 northern tribes secede under Jeroboam and they retain the name Israel and the two southern tribes are all that Rehoboam have left and they're called Judah. And we have the divided kingdom and the northern tribes will, will have 20 kings. Not one godly king, not a single one. And after 200 years, God says, enough is enough is enough. And God brings the Assyrians in 722 BC and they're carried into captivity. And every Jew today in Israel associates with the two southern tribes. Nobody associates with those northern tribes, none. Now, some of them have to be because they're coming back in Revelation 7. So we set aside the northern tribes of Israel. All we've got left now are the two southern tribes, Judah. They have 19 kings and a queen. She's a disaster, Athaliah. But they have six or seven, possibly partially godly kings. You have the most godly, Hezekiah, and then Jehoshaphat, and Uzziah, and Asa, and then you have the Jays, Jotham, and Joash, and Josiah. You have seven that you can quasi say are godly. And because of that, God gives them another 136 years. And in the last 41 years, he raises up Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says to the nation, God who is slow to anger and abounding in love is going to bring judgment. We need to turn, confess, agree with God, repent, turn from our sin or God will bring judgment. Do you know what the most cited verse in all of scripture, where scripture cites scripture? It's Exodus 34, six. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Nine citations in the Old Testament, a handful in the New Testament. If you wanna know the heart of God, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. So he has given these people generation after generation after generation to confess of their idolatry, their immorality, their lack of ethic, and to turn to the Lord. And towards the end of it, he raises up Jeremiah. We don't need to guess how long Jeremiah has been preaching. Jeremiah 1, 1 to 3, tells us he begins in the 13th year of Josiah. That's 41 years before 586 when Jerusalem is destroyed. 41 more years. God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, gives Judah to turn from their immorality, their idolatry, their lack of ethics. 28 chapters of Jeremiah. You know what they are? They're Jeremiah's sermons. They are part of 200 messages of Jeremiah. They all got the same theme. Confess, agree with God, repent, turn from your sin, take your eyes on what is down here, put your eyes on what is up there, worship God. 41 years, 200 partial messages were given Hundreds of years prior, God has given these stiff-necked people the opportunity to confess, agree with him, and repent. 
turn from him. And finally, God says, enough. Enough is enough is enough. I am going to bring discipline, restorative discipline, 70 years of captivity into your lives. It makes me think of one of God's prophets, Habakkuk. I'm actually going to preach on Habakkuk the Sunday prior to Thanksgiving. And Habakkuk is this, this prophet that is angry with God. You can't imagine why he's angry. Oh, you've read the book, you know it. But he's angry because God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Of all the lousy characteristics that God has to have, this God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Come on, God, take out Judah. And so he's angry with God. I'm thankful that he's slow to anger and abounding in love. I would have been snuffed out a long time ago. The person next to you probably was gonna be snuffed out as well. You're, you're, you're good, but that person next to you, eh, not so much. We're thankful that God is slow to anger and abounding in love, but Habakkuk's not. And so God finally comes to Habakkuk. You remember the account. And God says, I am finally going to bring discipline on Judah. And Habakkuk's all into it. Yes, God, give me the details. And you remember the text. God literally says something like this. I am about to do a work among you that will blow your mind. You can't imagine what I'm about to do. Are you ready for this, Habakkuk? Yeah. I'm going to raise up Babylon to take out Judah. And now the prophet's really mad. You know who Babylon is? Babylon the Great. What is Babylon called in the book of Revelation? Babylon the whore. That's not my bad language, that's scripture. It's the archetypical wicked city. It's 552 miles from where Habakkuk is as the crow flies, but about 800 to 1,000 miles as they would have wandered. God is going to raise up Habakkuk to take out Judah. And Habakkuk is incensed. And he says, how can a God who is so righteous that you cannot look at evil, how will you raise up a more evil nation to take out a less evil nation? And God says, you know, I'm so sovereign. I'm so great that I will never cause evil. I will never will evil, but I can even use an evil nation to do my bidding. Well, you remember what Habakkuk does, right? He builds a rampart, a bridge to nowhere, and he gets up on it and he says, I won't leave this until you answer me. A lot of scripture is historical literature. It is descriptive. It tells us what happened rather than prescriptive what we ought to do. This is descriptive. Why would a holy, holy, Holy God, a sovereign God, a God who is all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, omnipotent, present everywhere, omnipresent. Why would that God have to answer me? Why would he have to answer you? Why would he have to answer Habakkuk? 
So he's up on his rampart waiting for an answer. He only gets part of it. He doesn't get all of the answer. It reminds me of Job. Job, a most righteous man. You get to the 38th chapter. You remember? He's challenging the goodness of God, and God asks him a few questions. You can read how many, or you can wait till the Thanksgiving sermon. I'll tell you how many. And I'm going to give you the score. He gets a goose egg. He doesn't get a single one of God's questions right. And God is essentially saying, when you can answer my questions, I'll answer yours. Why would we think this holy, sovereign God has to answer us? Well, God raises up Babylon. The end of the story, we already know, by the way. Babylon is going to get theirs too. God is going to raise up the Medo Persian Empire to take out Babylon. They're not getting away with their evil. But for now, God is using Babylon as a tool in his hand to bring judgment. God is doing a great work. It reminds me of K141 Kursk. You may remember the event. It happened in 2000. This was a Russian nuclear sub. It went down in the Bering Strait, usually about 230 meters deep. That would be about 750 feet. But it actually went down in 108 meters, about 350 feet of Arctic cold. They had an explosion in the bow. Everyone died except 23 sailors in the stern. You may remember that the world gathered to watch this event. This was a nuclear submarine that had exploded. What is going to happen? And what about these men? And it wasn't that we couldn't reach them, we actually did reach them but nobody knew how to cut into a nuclear sub and nobody knew if there was some kind of danger in the nuclear sub that needed to be contained. And you remember the world listened as we heard metal on metal. It was Morse code. And over and over again, these 23 sailors, these brave sailors tapped out the same message. Is there hope? Is there hope? Is there hope? We know you're outside. Is there hope? And unless they knew Jesus Christ, there was no hope. Their temporal lives were going to be lost. And if they know Jesus, they were saved for eternity. Jeremiah is answering the same question. That's what Jeremiah 29 is all about. We are being carried into captivity. This is a dark period of time for Judah. There's going to be collateral damage. Is there hope? And resoundingly, Jeremiah comes back and says, there is hope. Understand what's about to happen idolaters are going to be carried into captivity. And we say, good, maybe they'll take their eyes off of here and put it on there. And the immoral are going to be carried into captivity. And we say, okay, good. Maybe they'll take their eyes off of here and they'll put it up there. But then there'll be Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel. 
And they're going to be carried into captivity. These young teens are going to be ripped from mom and dad, almost certainly never to see mom and dad again. They will be taken from family. They will be taken from the temple. They will be taken from priests. And they want to know, is there hope? There will people that will die in captivity. It will be seven decades long. Many will be perpetrators. Many will be innocent. Is there hope? And Jeremiah says there's hope. There's shalom, verse 11, peace, a wellness. There's tikwa. There's hope that's eternal. There is hope. In fact, he says, go on living. Let me read verses five to seven to us. It says this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord. You gotta be kidding me. They are in Babylon the whore. Pray for the welfare of the city? Yeah. Pray for the welfare of the city. And as God brings blessing on Babylon, God will bring blessing on you. And we look at the political scenarios around us, and we look at where our world is today, and we can complain, and we can be bitter, but it says pray for the welfare of the city. And as we pray and ask God to do what only God can do, actually the text is suggesting that if God answers our prayers, we will be the beneficiaries of them as well as others. But what God says to these individuals who are being carried into captivity for 70 years, go ahead and live life, a normal life. It's not the life you wanted. It's not the life you desired but I will bring you shalom. Verse 11, peace. I'll bring that to you. There'll be a wholeness. I think that's what God is saying today. Maybe some here today are, are in a difficult scenario in our lives. Maybe it's because of restorative discipline. God is disciplining us as his children. Or maybe it's because we live in a sin-tainted world and we are the recipients of some of the pain of living in a sin-tainted world, it doesn't matter. God says, take your eyes off the world. Put your eyes on me. Continue in life with me as the center. And I will bring you shalom. I will bring you peace, a wellness, a fullness, not financial prosperity. That's not what the text says. But God will give peace to your soul and if you know Jesus, there's an eternity that we look forward to. That's what God is promising. Well, I want to conclude with just a few thoughts. First, I hope in a few weeks when we have child dedications that a couple parents might actually choose this text. Oh, there's lots of others, no pressure. But I love this text in context. It's about a God who is one of grace, one of mercy, who calls us out of sin 
to agree, confess, to repent, to turn. It's about a God who promises shalom, wellness to us. And if we know Jesus as Savior, a future and a hope, a tikwa with God in heaven. Isn't that a lesson we want our children to learn? Second, we've got to always cite this in context. It's not the Protestant prosperity gospel an Aladdin's lamp, a promise that everything will go well for you. If you seek me, you will find me. That's what he's saying. Seek him, find him, and he will bring shalom, peace to our heart, and to hope eternity with God in heaven. That's what the promise is. It's really very similar to Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, And chastises every son, every daughter whom he receives. It's a restorative discipline text. Third, I just want to remember the incredible grace of the text. I want to remember the incredible grace. God gave Judah years and years. You have the 330 years of the judges. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes rather than the eyes of God. You have the mess of Saul. Some good years with David, mixed bag with Solomon, 120 years. You have 336 years with the kings and queen of Judah. You have 41 years at the end with Jeremiah preaching a couple hundred sermons, saying, yeah, God is slow to anger and abounding in love, but there's a point in which God says enough is enough. And we're at that point. There's a point, and we're there. Confess, agree, repent, turn, and seek the Lord. And in the midst of the discipline, remember the the wellness, the fullness, the shalom, and keep your eyes on Jesus. Finally, whenever you talk about God's discipline, you're going to find preachers and teachers who are going to say, ah, no, no, no. God is a God of love. He is. God is love. But he's also a God of righteous wrath, a God of justice. And they're always going to find false teachers. You know what? We have one in our text. If you read the chapter just prior to Jeremiah 29, let me read the beginning of Jeremiah 28, starting a little bit in from verse 1. Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests, and all the people saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, he's about to speak for God, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years. I will bring you back to this place, all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declareth the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And then again, verses 10 and 11. 
Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. It's another way of saying Jeremiah stopped listening. God had spoken through Jeremiah. He said not two years, 70 years. Not one-fifth of a decade, seven decades. I will bring discipline. I'll bring the Babylonian Empire. Then I will bring the Medo-Persian Empire. And then I will bring you back. And Hananiah's, no, 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 no. That's too harsh. Little decaf, brother. Little too harsh. What you really need is to tell the people two years. That'll give them hope. And Jeremiah walked out. And if you read the whole chapter, God takes Hananiah's life from him for speaking wrong for the Lord. And they are carried into captivity for 70 years. So what's the end of the story? It's a mixed bag, I'll be honest, it is. In 536, some of the Jews return. That's the book of Haggai, the book of Ezra. If we had a book of Zerubbabel, it would be his book as well. And they rebuild the temple in 536. It's a long time before they rebuild the walls. That's the book of Nehemiah. That's in 444 BC. And there's all sorts of idolatry still going on. And God will again destroy the temple in 70 AD because of these thick-necked individuals who will not turn, confess, repent to the Lord. So what's the message of Jeremiah 29? It's a message of hope. There is hope. It's a message of grace and mercy. It's a message that says sometimes because God loves us, he will bring restorative discipline in our lives. And we need to keep short accounts. The shorter the count, the less the collateral damage. When I refuse to confess, refuse to repent, it impacts others around me. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, Jeremiah. But when God brings restorative discipline, we quickly confess, agree with God. We turn empowered by God's spirit and we repent. We go on living. We build houses. We take spouses. We have children, but we keep our eyes on God rather than the world. And God promises to bring shalom, peace. And if we know Jesus, fakwa, hope. Peter says we are strangers and aliens this is not our home we are passing through. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as with each of these many passages, there's ones that we know, we've heard, but maybe sometimes we've let go of the context. Forgive us of that. Help us to study your word in context, cite your word in context, hold fast to your word. Father, all of us, certainly myself, we put our eyes on things below. 
Help us to set our eyes on you above. Father, thank you that even in the midst of being in a sin-tainted world or even in the midst of restorative discipline, you offer shalom peace. And for we who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you offer a future and a hope eternal. Help us to keep our eyes on those truths. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.